podcast, It's Honest, the podcast of the Australian Democrats. I'm your host, Alana Mitchell. And on this episode, the Senate, what is it good for? Spoiler alert, absolutely everything. We've talked a lot on Keep the Bastards Honest about the Democrats' work and history in the Senate, some of the truly significant and inspirational senators that the party has produced, and why the Democrats have traditionally mostly been a party of the Senate or the upper houses of the state parliaments for those states that have upper houses. Hi, Queensland. For the politically engaged, so much of the focus is on the House of Representatives, the horse race between the two major parties over who gets to form government and the potential upsets that the Teal Independents and other minor parties running for the House of Reps could offer and whether a hung parliament could be in the making. But all of this overlooks the role of the Senate and how important this chamber is to our government and our democracy. So we thought we'd ask someone who served in the Senate and who was personally responsible for some enormously significant legislative changes, what the deal is with the Senate and what it's like to be a senator. And National President Lynn Allison very kindly agreed to talk with Steve and I about the Senate, why it's so important and surprisingly powerful, and what a privilege it was to be an Australian senator. Lynn, Steve and I pay our respects to the traditional custodians of the land upon which we met and their elders past and present. Sovereignty never ceded. Steve, the election finally, finally got called today. Are you excited? I am. I am. I'm ready to begin. I'm ready to start an election. I think we've had enough of the sort of false false winter, false, false <laughs> summer, false spring. I'm not sure which is most appropriate, but the faux campaign has ended and we can, we can start the real one. Fantastic. We're both running for the Senate and with the campaign being called, I've, I've, I've had a moment of going, maybe we should tell our listeners what, it's, what the Senate's about. You know, everyone's focused on the House of Reps. Everyone's super excited at the thought of finally having their say on our government and everybody forgets about the Senate. Thankfully, we have not one but several former senators in our party mm. who can tell us all about it. <laughs> I guess that's me. <laughs> Hi, Lynn. Lynn. <laughs> and it is exciting. Um, elections are terrifying but uh, exhilarating at the same time. So we have to pitch in and uh, do our best, and I think we will. So, but you know, what is this? What's the Senate all about? Um, yes, that is the front of mind for us at the moment. It's so we, we've spent I don't know how long basically preparing for this, and now that the hour is nigh, I woke up this morning going, "What, what on earth have I signed up for? What am I getting myself into?" <laughs> well, what you're getting yourself into is the most powerful house there is around the world in terms of upper houses. So our Senate is required to pass all legislation and uh, very often um, upper houses just get, uh, you know, to do recommendations or, or uh, but they don't have the power that our Senate has. They also don't have this separateness. So the Senate, our Senate is a house which really runs itself. The Senate doesn't take instructions from the lower house and that's a really good thing. The other really important role the Senate plays is in legislation and in inquiry. 
So every bill must pass, as I said, every bill must pass both Houses of Parliament. And uh, what I found when I was in the Senate was that there was very little debate in the in the House of Reps, uh, a lot of rhetoric yeah. and a lot of uh, people standing up and saying things. But that amounted to nothing in the end because the government had the numbers. It were, could be assured 99.9% of the time that, that all of the government members would vote in favour of the bill unamended and then it would be passed to the Senate. And that's when there's a real inquiry takes place. So mm. the bill then will be exposed to the people. They'll be invited, if it's a significant bill, they'll be invited to have their say on it. They'll make a submission. Uh, They may appear before a committee which will hear from them and ask questions about uh, the position they've put forward. So that's all public. And then a report is written and the parties who are involved in that inquiry have the opportunity of either reaching consensus agreement, which is the best outcome, or uh, having a dissenting report. So everyone can see what's gone on. They, They can see the submissions. They can see what members of parliament have asked, what they've said about Uh, the bill in their report. And some of these inquiries can go on for quite a long time and travel the country. So I chaired several uh, committees in my time and for a really contentious, important piece of legislation, an enormous amount of effort can go into that. So that's what you're looking forward to. Mm. <laughs> uh, believe me, it, <clears throat> it's not a part-time job. This is uh, <laughs> this requires, and of course, the Democrats have always been in their boots and all. So yeah. we have been represented on all committees. We've chaired as many as we could. Uh, so we've put an enormous amount of effort into into hearing from people and making decisions because that inquiry process informs you as to how you will vote when the when the bill comes up. So mm-hmm. you can quote the submissions that have been made by uh, people based on the evidence. That's what we're always looking for. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's what makes this an important uh, house. There are some inquiries that are done in the House of Reps, but frankly, it's busy work. In the Senate <laughs> is really where the action takes place. It's also much more representative. So the Senate is elected what's called at-large. So each state gets six senators at a half-Senate election and 12 senators are elected at a, at a double dissolution. That's a complicated situation which doesn't happen all that often. So this time we're having a half-Senate election and we'll be electing six senators from each state. It's a diff- completely different voting system from the House of Reps. In the House of Reps you need to get 50% of the vote after preferences plus one and that gets you over the line. In the Senate, because we're elected at large, the quota is not 50%, it's more like 14.3%. And so uh, if everybody votes for the number one on the ticket and they get more than the, uh, more than the quota, that's transferred on to the next, next person of your choice. So that means that we are more likely to have uh, minor parties involved in the Senate because roughly the number of people who voted for the Senate will mean the number of people who are elected. 
Now, that, that sounds straightforward, but it isn't what happens in the lower house, of course. So the lower house is really a race between the two major parties by and large. And uh, sometimes we have, if they're very good and they get a high profile, sometimes we have independents who win seats. But by and large, that's how it works, whereas the Senate is completely different and much more representative of the population at large and what they, what, what they vote for. Lynn, can I, I just pick up on something there in the preferential voting system? So in New South Wales, we expect that the Labor Party, for example, will win enough first preference votes to receive at least two full quotas with their vote. They'll, they'll receive 30-odd percent of, of first preferences is, is a broad expectation. How is that leftover part apportioned like how do you know which like which ballots to distribute preferences for I guess as a voter no no as, as part of the actual count itself like if um to to use round numbers like if the Labor Party has 50,000 extra votes that need to be distributed which 50 do you choose is my is, is kind of my question and I'm, and I'm really sort of curious about the mechanics of it the way it works is that the 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 votes are transferred according to what you put on the ballot paper so they follow you you direct the way in which your your the vote moves so you you will either either you'll um, vote for a group ticket where that's been predetermined or, mm-hmm. or you've, or you know, if you're like me, what you mm-hmm. do is go through the entire um, ballot paper and choose. Yep. So, so if yeah. you do that, if you do that, you know exactly where your vote will be transferred to. And so what happens is that the smaller parties get exhausted, if you like, first. Yes. So, so they take the lowest number, and and it goes back up, if you like, back up to the to the the greater number of votes. And when the the vote is transferred, it does lose some of its um, value. It's a complicated process, and I'm not yeah. sure even under even uh, even articulate it. But it, it's all there in the um, AEC's website, of course. But it's I think it's a process which has very been very carefully worked out that makes sure that we are, we have the the most mm. representative elected people. Yeah, I think. Uh- this year, I'll probably be following the Senate count far more closely than I ever have done in the past <laughs> um, for obvious self-serving reasons. And, of course, uh, that, that doesn't happen on election night. We won't know who no. the, who's in the Senate on election night, and sometimes that can take some time oh, wow. to work through. So it's, 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 <laughs> it gets fed into a computer and that spits out uh, the results after a while. But it's a, it's a very complicated situation. Hello, editing Alana here. Confused? Don't be. I'll put some links in the show notes to the AEC website where they have a ton of really useful information on not only on how the Senate count works, but how to actually vote in the Senate in a way that'll ensure that your vote will go exactly where you want it to do. So don't panic. Anyway, back to the pod. How 
However, that mm. said, uh, we now have fewer parties contesting the Senate thanks mm. to the much tighter requirements to register as a party, as we all know. Yes. Uh, instead of 500, is 1,500 people you have to have. Uh, mm -hmm. But there will still be quite a number of um, minor parties and that's a good thing. Mm. So it's good to see that they've come through and been able to uh, fulfil the requirements of um, being a party. As we did. As we I did. I just need to be a little bit smug about that because we <laughs> smashed it. <laughs> yes, we did. We did. Can I, I I'm, I'm going to pick up on something else then. Uh, Lynn, those, you know, significant pieces of legislation, those committee hearings, you mentioned you will go out to like across the country. Like what do those sessions look like? Are those sort of small uh, town hall type meetings? Are they meetings with lobby groups and interest groups, community groups, individuals? What are you doing during those periods? Well, it depends on the inquiry. Uh, I've been mm -hmm. on several inquiries that have been to very remote parts of Australia. So you can be meeting out in the open on uh, some, <laughs> some chairs someone's brought along, or you can be in Parliament House, State Parliament Houses very often accommodate Senate inquiries. So it can be it can be any kind of format, although obviously all of the proceedings are recorded, so you need to have some level of um, level of technology. But I've certainly been involved in in those in the very outback. And they're, you know, they're quite arresting and quite quite important to know about for people like me who have spent most of their time in the city, just understanding what the circumstances are in those remote areas has been really important. But look, I had a quick look at the website, uh, the AEC website, on the kinds of inquiries that are currently afoot. So GPs and primary health issues, Australia's naval shipbuilding capability, oil and gas exploration, Australia's faunal extinction crisis, planning uh, of the Western Sydney Airport, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples in Australia and foreign interference through social media. So these are, the, these are not about bills. These are about references on current issues. So, you know, this, the, the Senate is able to be across some of these big issues because of the inquiries that they do. And, uh, of course, the best inquiry comes up with a consensus report and that way everybody has to take notice of it because uh, if you've got agreement across the board then uh, it has to happen pretty much that's not to say the government will always agree but there's a there's a better chance of them doing so so i have um chaired a lot of inquiries in my time and i always worked for that consensus because just because it'll give a better outcome you're more likely to get buy-in by the government and as i said public servants right across the board people will get it <laughs> so it's much more likely and uh, that was that was what the democrats did they looked for outcomes and that's why i think it's important that we have we have parties that can be flexible, that can be open to new information. When I change my, uh, when when the evidence changes, I change my mind. What about you? You know that that <laughs> that famous question. I think you know we personify that. We do change yeah. our mind, and often, and we're not afraid to say we don't know. We're not across that issue, and we don't know the answer to it. But what what we'd like to do is inquire, find out. You know what is the evidence? 
What are people saying? Who is affected by this? Who are the stakeholders? What are they saying? Can we believe them? Uh, you know, what's legitimate? And so that's that seems to me to be a really important process for us to yes. arrive at the right decision. Now, of yes. course, you know, we don't always have the, the beauty of that process because so often the two major parties agree more than they don't. So hmm. when they when they disagree, that's when the crossbench becomes important and that's where you have a real chance of influencing the process. So hmm. many, many occasions on many, many occasions we will have just voted against the government on bills, um, but Labor will have supported them, so they go through. So I think that's a really good reason why the crossbench should have balance of power. The, the best time, really, for the Democrats was when they enjoyed balance of power in their own right. Yes. So they didn't have to have uh, collaboration with other minor parties, particularly the Greens, but uh, we're going to see other minor parties being involved. So if you if we had it... Uh, then we we exercise that that privilege, if you like, uh, very carefully, and always considered what others said about it. It's an extraordinary responsibility. It is. The Senate surprised me in in the way in which people actually work together, especially on inquiries. So mm -hmm. the. the you know, and some are politicised. There's no question about that. Sometimes yeah. an inquiry will be put up, and it's just a bit of a fighting match, and so uh, like nothing, nothing substantial comes out of it. But those inquiries where you're looking at issues rather than legislation, in particular, they're the ones that actually change people's minds. You know, become become the the become the amendments to legislation that gets passed in the parliament. So yeah. that's that's the uh, that's the amazing thing about about the parliament, and then of course private members' bills. Uh, they don't often get up, but uh, yeah. Democrats have been successful in in two of those, which is quite something over time. So tobacco advertising, and of course uh, RU four eight six, the abortifacient. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. a lot of people after that vote said to me that. For the first time, they observed the, the parliament working as it should. That yeah. is not dominated by the government of the day and everybody in the parliament got involved. They all made speeches. They all, uh, they all came for the vote. They all, you know, this was a very serious undertaking and mm. uh, the outcome, of course, was, uh, was a very good one. It came up in the ABC's Misrepresented documentary series, which yeah. was mm. an extraordinary piece of of work uh, from the ABC and if you haven't watched it you should and I remember you know seeing archival footage of you standing up in the Senate debating RU486 it was so arresting watching you debating that incredibly important topic in the chamber and for, for someone who I feel sometimes I've stumbled into politics almost by accident purely driven by my desire to make a difference and, and, and to want this country to be better than it is. And uh, it was so inspiring to me to see archival footage of you, you know, in full flight at the height of, of the Democrats' power. It was just, it was incredible. So. It was also a lot of fun. You know, there was uh, the, the girls of the Senate got together big time and, uh, and crunched the numbers and, and worked at, uh, just worked so collaboratively with one another. It was, uh, it was brilliant. And, and what women said was, 
we need more of that. You know, can you do the same thing on childcare? Can you yeah. <laughs> can you step up for um, other women's issues or you know not not women's issues but important issues? The answer was no. Of course, the major parties disliked that process enormously, <laughs> and they made it very clear to the members who were in that group that uh, there was to be no more of that. <laughs> and it was a threat. It was a threat to the government. It was a threat to the major parties and their authority over them, over their members. So um, it didn't happen, which is very sad, but, uh, but at least we know it can. I think uh, Elena made a, a point earlier about the last 15 years and how that sort of constructive role of the Senate seems to be, to, seems to have diminished significantly over that period. And it's you know, I, I think what we've what we've had instead is a Senate where that constructive relationship has been lost, where the role of the crossbench has has diminished, and you know we, we've essentially had an, an opposition in the Senate who was simply against things rather than working collaboratively to improve things in the way that you've just described? Yes, well, it's hard to know not being there. Uh, the work of the Senate is often um, not f- not front and centre, but but I agree. It appears that that more, more of the Senate's work has been politicised and therefore adversarial. And uh, the, the problem is with with a handful of independents and, and, you know, I have to say it, the Greens um, typically don't work for outcomes in the same way that we have. So uh, it wouldn't surprise me if the Senate is less effective as a result of us not being there. That's, I think that's a fair assumption. I've always tried to avoid slagging off other parties. We've always tried to help, um, not help, we've always tried to discuss the government in, you know, hold the government to account in terms of what they're doing or not, in, mo- in most cases, not doing. And getting into a slagging match with parties who are not in government doesn't serve anyone's purposes. But I will make the observation that the Greens essentially filled the void that the Democrats left when we lost our parliamentary representation. And I think over the last 15 years, purely because they are a different political party, they have a different philosophy, they have a different focus and and a different approach to things, they have failed to perform the role that the Democrats did. And I I think the government, I think the the parliament and I think the country feels that absence. You know, we've had a lot of commentary on social media about how many people just miss the Democrats being in the parliament. And I think that's indicative of the crossbench as it stands and, and the, you know, sorry Greens, but the Greens in particular failing to live up to what it was that we achieved. Indeed. And, look, there's a role for the Greens, of course, mm. uh, and strong stand on various things is, imp- is important, but we need balance in the Senate. So we need parties that that can go beyond that. We need parties that, that are more representative, I think. It hurt when we uh, lost all our seats and the Greens pretty much took over the role that we had, but I don't believe that role was uh, was the same or even close. So, mm. yes, uh, I mean, you know, and one of the things we've always been is uh, different from any other party. The way we came together, we uh, the party is not really attracted rusted-on people, if I can put it that way. <laughs> so we... 
we've had teachers, we've had uh, people from all walks of life, we've had ministers, we've, you know, a very diverse range of uh, professions have been attracted to the Democrats. So I think Parliament is also worse off for not having that diversity. Too many lawyers, too many union people, too many, um, too many sort of extremists, that's not good for a, a Parliament. So I think it would be better if our parties were made up of people like we, like we used to have. So let, let's bring that diversity back into the Parliament um, and I think that's where we get, uh, we get proper debate, we get uh, an interest in outcomes and we get, um, you know, views from more people. One thing I've noticed during our, you know, our, our recent membership drives and talking to members is the one thing that holds our very diverse membership together is that we're all critical thinkers. That that's sort of the demographic that has been attracted to the Democrats, and it doesn't make for a rusted on base because yeah. critical thinkers question everything. So, <laughs> so it's it's both a blessing and a curse in some ways, and that we we you know we we have to maintain that faith with them as critical thinkers that we will still pursue the evidence, still pursue, you know, what is the best for the country. Put aside ideology and belief systems. You know, we, we talk about evidence, evidence-based decision-making. It's probably more than evidence-based. It's also sort of understanding people and what effect bills and uh, and issues are having on them. So we definitely need to need to listen. And I think we've been good at listening. So the problem with the major parties often is that once a decision is made, introduction of a bill or whatever it is, once that decision is made, you've got to stick by it. You know, there's no room for movement, whereas we've always been a bit, well, on the one hand, on the other hand, you know, let's kind of, kind of work this out. Most issues are complicated, Lynn. Most issues oh. have more nuance than that. You know, like Australia and Australians are diverse and rich and Complex. I mean, the the idea that there are simple answers to these things and that those those answers don't change and, and shouldn't change is a is a gross oversimplification. Absolutely. Mm. And if you go to the far north of Queensland and or to Launceston in Tassie, uh, you'll find similarities, but also big differences in how people yeah. think about things. So, uh, it's a challenge, really, representing people. So the best you can do is is build your knowledge and whether that's through evidence or whether it's talking with people and understanding their circumstances and then yeah. making some kind of decision that isn't about keeping you in power but is about the best, what is the best outcome for a piece of legislation or um, whatever it is in front of you. I was uh, struck by a, a quote in Julianne Schultz's book, The Idea of Australia. She's quoting David Marr, and 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 he's a, an, an essayist who, who wrote about uh, has has written a lot about Australia. But the the, the quote is is essentially along the lines of asking the question, why is Australia ruled from the edges rather than from the centre? You know, we we seem to be a country that's ruled from the fringes of intellectual and political thought rather than from the centre of where most Australians sit. Um, and, it, and it struck me as an interesting observation, especially as we look at the increasing polarisation and the deliberate efforts to divide and, and separate people into, into groups that are against one another and for themselves. It struck me as, as quite a, a powerful observation. Yes. Uh, l- last night I 
watched a program uh, on Netflix about Ukraine in 2014-15 when there was an uprising against the government of the day that wanted to join the Russian Federation again. And just to observe the uh, the, the, the the organisation and the and the great determination of these people in this shocking attack on them, arguably worse than what we've seen in the last few weeks in Ukraine. I, I did wonder, really, whether whether Australians would be able to collaborate in the way that I came through on that film. Be you know, we, we, there was no division <laughs> um, in terms of intent and collaboration and um, and doing this terrible work of trying to fend off uh, the Russian troops. So it's a, you know, I think you're right in that division. We, there's we've we've had member we've had prime ministers that have deliberately tried to divide the country. But John Howard did, whether it was about Indigenous people or whether it was about refugees. So we've we've had our leaders driving people in different directions. So and not having not having that unity of purpose or or agreement um, around what should happen. I think we can do much better. We should have better prime ministers than we've had in recent times, they should they should be capable of rising to the occasion more, of uh, l- less focused on keeping their own jobs and more focused on bringing the country together. Uh, the same is true of the US. How divisive was Donald Trump? You know, I don't I don't think that uh, Scott Morrison is as divisive as him, who could be, but he has been over time, and we've had leaders who who think that's the way to behave and that's important for their re-election. It's a sad situation. It is. It really diminishes the country. And to have no one, you know, in the upper house or even in the lower house to call that out and hold them accountable and say, no, no, let's let's sit down and talk about this, what is actually in the best interests of the country. I mean, the last three years we've seen a government that ruled in the best interests of itself in terms of holding on to power and a government that was completely devoid of any kind of agenda or vision for the nation. And the worst example of that division is is action on climate. I mean, how can we? It's astounding that that uh, that we we are still considering that fossil fuels are the way of the future, um, when the evidence could not be clearer that thirty years ago we should have embarked on on uh, mitigation of greenhouse emissions and didn't. So our, our parliament is is uh, sullied by vested interest and donations from uh, organisations that have something to gain by making those donations. So it's a shocking revelation, I think, that we can't move forward because of the influence that's been purchased by donations. And uh, so... I think you know that's that's the key. We just have to get rid of donations to political parties that can do this, and so it's essential. We must not go through another election that doesn't have caps on donations and caps on spending, because that's what so diminishes the decisions that should be being made, but are not. Diminishes the wrong word. 
You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It undermines it all. And, you know, the whole concept of state capture is probably an, an, a topic for another podcast, which, uh, you know, we'll add that to the list. But coming back to the Senate, it, it was fascinating to me, you know, as you spoke at the beginning about how the House of Reps, because the government will, you know, usually has a majority, it's all sort of theatre and bluster and uh, I wouldn't say an act, but, you know, the opposition and, and, and the House of Reps crossbench can argue against things, but the government usually has the power to just ram through the legislation that it wants. And I find it fascinating that it, it slams into the brick wall that is the Senate and the Senate can go, well, we'll just go and have a look at this. We'll come back to you. Our Senate is, uh, you know, the most powerful upper house in the world, which I think is probably the best kept secret in, in politics. What's it like Coming into that space, this sounds really, really trivial, but you were elected senator for the first time in the, in the, in the 90s. What was it like sort of discovering that you, you'd won your quota and that you'd be going to Canberra and then rocking up to Government House and, and getting sworn in? And is there like an onboarding process? Do they, you know, does someone take you under your wing and go, this is what, you know, this is where the toilets are and this is, you know? <laughs> uh, not really. Look, there is there is an orientation, or there was for me an orientation, and so the the clerks of the Senate uh, took us through procedures. I don't remember remembering much of this at all because it was all so new and so uh, you know, terrifying in some in some respects. But the benefit I had that a lot of that independents don't have, and a lot of um, smaller parties don't have, is colleagues so i i sat around the table every morning with people who'd been in the in the parliament already for some time and we had a whips a whips clerk so she was one of the most informative well in you know well informed persons uh, i've ever known she she could tell you precisely what was going on at any point in time she she knew the procedures back to front so learning learning the parliament you know and how it operates is a really big challenge so I couldn't have done anything that I did without with without that support because um, you know I think senators think once they land there uh, especially from the major parties they're sort of all powerful and they can no one can tell them what to do whereas you know when when you're not in that in that group, it can be quite hard. If you don't ask the question on day one, you know, it can be quite hard to get get to answers um, that you need. So, um, yes, it was uh, I, I still didn't really get across a lot of the procedural stuff that happened in the Senate because it is so complex. But it's also about balance. So, so the two major parties always make sure that, that the way the Senate operates will be Add, uh, not add, uh, will, will be balanced. They don't put in place a, a measure, for instance, a, a, a procedure which could backfire if they lose office and they'll be in opposition. So they're constantly thinking, oh, well, you know, how will this work if I'll be in government or how will it work in opposition? So there's a, people don't 
often understand how how finely balanced all of these procedures are. So yes, the uh, and then you you arrive in the Senate and you've got staff. You have uh, have a couple of weeks to sort of recruit staff. <laughs> that can be a challenge, you know. I've made plenty of mistakes on staffing. Uh, often the party will will throw up people who become your staff members. So uh, that that's a challenge. Even finding your way around Parliament is a challenge. It's an enormous building and, um, you know, getting lost is quite common and you need to move from your office to the committee room to the chamber to you're, you're running all day long. You um, started in Parliament in Old Parliament House, is that correct? No, 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 no. No, you came, in, you came into New Parliament House. I did, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fortunately, New Parliament House is the most beautiful building imaginable. I um, mean, there are some gaudy bits of it, you know, too much marble in my view, but um, to live and work in that environment is gorgeous. You know, there, there, are, there are glances at various points when you're rushing along a corridor where you see this superb garden arrangement. Um, it's just glorious. Not not everybody appreciates it. We 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 have um, in the parliament access to beautiful artworks, so you can you you get to choose what artwork you have. And of course, my my background was in art, and so um, I, I went through the entire catalogue of what the parliament had on offer, <laughs> to the point where the the curator said to me at some point, "Is it, you not liking any of this?" I went, "No, I love it all. I just want the best," you know. <laughs> <laughs> but there were others who wanted to bring in this. This was all contemporary work, so work of Australian artists uh, from the time that the Parliament House was erected. So there's there should be no other artworks in uh, in the building. But of course, there were plenty who wanted to get uh, you know McCubbins in and uh, back to <laughs> back to the early stuff, uh, which was a great pity. Um, so some philistines in the parliament. I think I can fairly say that. Um, <laughs> I had a wonderful time with the artwork and I changed it frequently just so I got uh, as much of it as possible. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious what a what is the makeup of a, a senatorial staff? Like what does it look like? Is it a cast of thousands or is it a, a smaller sort of tight group? It depends and it depends on how many members of parliament you have. So it, the simple answer is an individual gets three members three staff members, um, but when you're a party, uh, some things are shared like the whips clerk and there are extra numbers of staff for, you know, the bigger you are, the more extra staff you get, which, again, is the two major parties um, shaping it up for themselves. I don't know if there, there may well have been changes since I was there, but I enjoyed not only the three staff members that I had, but sharing them with other senators. So there were, we had staff who covered over on two or three portfolios typically. Uh, so, uh, yes, um, being part of a group was really important. I don't know how independents do it with three staff. Getting across all of the legislation that comes through, that seems almost impossible to me as an individual, especially a first-timer, you know, no idea what you're getting into. Sort of listening to the way some parliamentarians talk about, you know, how they vote and talking about being across the legislation, it's it's clear that some of them simply aren't. 
they show up to the chamber, they ask somebody else, what are we voting on and, and, and are we for it or against it? And they take their seat and say aye or, or nay, depending on what the person just told them, and they leave again without ever engaging with the substance of it. Yes, yes, it's almost impossible. The number of bills that go through uh, is, is enormous. Um, and you do, you know, we, we were across every single one of them. We had to be. We felt that was our, our obligation to do that. Uh, even bills that weren't controversial. Uh, you need to you need to know what's going on. So uh, we had party room meetings every day, and we would go through the bills list, and we would debate what we would do um, to various of them and why. Uh, so it was a very considered approach. But um, you know, and what and what I observe is that independents often come with their own special projects or, you know, they're putting up bills for various things and getting a bit of publicity, but it's it's not the same thing as being a Member of Parliament. Lynn, we've, we've spoken a lot about the legislative process, I guess. Can you talk about the role of the different Senate committees, those standing committees like Senate Estimates or Foreign Affairs or um, yeah. the Administration Wire, like the... Yes, we have what's called standing committees, so they, mm. they always exist. So the Environment Committee, Environment Communications and the Arts Committee, um, they rarely change names, so that, that's, a, that's an ongoing committee uh, and, and there are two sets of committees, two sets of standing committees. So you have the References Committee, which is chaired by a non-government senator, and you have the legislation uh, committee. So the legislation committee obviously deals with bills that are coming through. Um, and the references committee um, now and again deals with bills that are coming through. We've managed to pull that off on a couple of occasions, <laughs> but typically not. It uh, it brings the bill. It has a it has a often. If it's a not controversial bill, it'll have just a short hearing, maybe in Canberra. It'll invite submissions, um, and there'll be a quick report written, and that will be sent to the Parliament, uh, or rather to the Senate. So this is this is the Senate process, not the not the lower house process, and and those will go through as uncontroversial. People will vote on members of Parliament will vote on them, but. You know, as long as they're not controversial, they probably don't need you know a, a great deal of debating. But the big issues can can be very lengthy processes. So the GST, for example, that lasted for many months. It travelled the entire country. We actually had several committees within a committee, and that was a select committee. So that was a bit unusual uh, for us to do that to a bill. And I chaired the uh, the one that dealt with the energy and environment on that. Uh, so even though we have a set of standing committees, we can go outside that and have a select committee. We can say, right, this is a this is a committee that needs to have its own terms of reference and not be part of a general reference committee. I did that with mental health. So I'd been working closely with the mental health sector. And at a point in time, 
I said to them, should we be inquiring into this? And they said, yes, we've given up on the government because they're just not moving on the mental health plan or it's a, you know, it's a, it's too high level to be making a difference or there's not enough money, whatever. And so we embarked on this and we were able to make it a select committee. The Senate has to agree to everything, of course, uh, but we were able, I was able to get that up as a select committee. And at that time, um, <laughs> I pretty much said to the major parties, look, uh, you know, I want to chair this and it's going to get the go-ahead. The timing is right. Everybody thinks it's important that we have an inquiry. Uh, so it's either I chair it or I give it to the opposition or I give it to the government, depending on who I'm talking to. And that was, <laughs> so it was agreed that I would be the chair, <laughs> which was nice. So we had an enormous, we were able to, to see that the people who were appointed onto it would, were, were interested in the subject and were able to come up with a consensus view. And that's what we did. So we had a completely consensus um, report at the end of the day. And uh, what happened was that the government sent um, a little group of uh, high-level bureaucrats to every hearing that we had so that when uh, when the end of the, uh, the inquiry uh, came and the report was released and its recommendations, the, ta- the government of the day... Howard government tabled um, what it would do in response and it uh, generated many millions of dollars uh, for the uh, for the cause. So um, so yes, the, the, the answer is the Senate can do pretty much anything it chooses uh, by way of uh, what it inquires into. And uh, I found myself very, very quickly being part of that process. I, I initiated a housing inquiry. I, I was only there for five minutes, but... <laughs> <laughs> it was agreed that I would take on housing and we would do an inquiry. So um, I found myself, um, you know, right in the thrust of things uh, straight away. So it was a, a terrific learning process. And it was, you know, one about asking questions of people, getting good answers, all of that. So I, I was um, lucky, I think, that I'd been a teacher. So that was that I at least, I'd least had some skills in that direction. <laughs> But uh, but many didn't, you know. There were there were a lot of people who didn't really know how to how to get answers from witnesses. But all part of the learning process that uh, that everybody goes through. It's amazing. And Lynn, that process of orientation and getting organised, like the the election this year just announced that the election is going to be on May twenty one. The new Senate sits on the first of July. Does orientation take place on the 1st of July or is that sort of what that six weeks is for in the in the interim? Uh, it happens beforehand. Uh, so, uh, look, yeah, I can't give you the exact sort of timing. Um, I think we were brought to Canberra to for orientation mm-hmm. ahead of uh, actually taking up our seats. We also had to organise um, offices in our in our various states, so that 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 happened mm. ahead of time. So we were senators elect mm-hmm. uh, for a period, and so I can't remember exactly how many weeks we had, but mm. uh, but it was it was a few. It's a whirlwind uh, in the first first several months. <laughs> <laughs> to figure out what it is you're doing, but uh, hopefully we get more than one senator elected. That way, uh, there'll at least be company. Yes. <laughs> and look, it's it's highly likely that the the Senate now has uh, more by way of I won't say training because most most people would re- reject that idea, but uh, more more on offer. I, I know that I 
was asked to speak at some new senators' training sessions. So, yes, it, it'll, it'll be there, but take good notes. <laughs> <laughs> this might be a test of your memory, Lynn, but I remember our, one of our young Democrats, Bianca, was going through and doing infographics on how Parliament works, basically, and, and, and our history in the Parliament. I remember her on one of those infographics talking about how the Democrats actually sort of transformed the way the Senate operated, that prior to Don Chip and the others sort of barnstorming the Senate in, in the 1980 election, led by sort of Janine Haynes filling a casual vacancy in 1977, prior to that, it was sort of referred to the House of the Living Dead and it seemed a bit uh, non-performative. Can, can you put any sort of uh, shed any light on, on, on that aspect of the history? I wasn't there in those early days, obviously, but um, Janine Haynes was a trailblazer and she, she said to the government soon after she arrived in the Senate, uh, I can't do this unless I've got, I've got access to proper research, proper staffing. I will vote against what you put up if you don't, if you don't allow the process to be more transparent and allow people to ask questions and get answers and so on. So that was really the beginning. And, of course, uh, I should have mentioned this sooner, the most wonderful aspect of the Senate is what's called the Senate Library. It's actually not a library at all, though it has lots of books. What it is is a research um, facility, and that's her work. So she was able to persuade the government that uh, we need people who are able to respond quickly to give me a brief about A, B or C, tell me what's going on with uh, this and they will say, and when do you need it, Senator? And the answer will be either I need it by this afternoon or I need it in two weeks' time or something of that sort. So, <laughs> And so these are the most skillful, highly trained people imaginable uh, with enormous amounts of knowledge and the capacity to do research and give you a brief at the drop of a hat if you need it. Now, obviously, the, the brief will be longer and more detailed if, if there's more time, but that's not always um, the case. And so that also triggered a lot of other processes which were then made available to everybody. So instead of just having the, oh, I can't even remember the name of the title of it, but the, the sort of the, the bill itself and the explanatory memorandum, you know, that, that's sort of typical what you get in the parliament, there would also be a brief from the parliament about the bill. That was something that her work also delivered. But... The Senate is its own house. It, it makes its own decisions about how much money it, may, it needs. It makes decisions about all its processes and procedures. So it is very different from the House of Reps and fiercely independent of it. So, <laughs> so it, it managed to appoint um, marvellous clerks of the Senate who would, uh, who would be able to write a, an amendment to a, a bill for you. In fact, that's that's one of the big roles of the clerks of the Senate. Clerk sounds like a very, you know, sort of ordinary role, but it's not, believe me. So these these are people who you meet with, you go, I, want, I really want to put a, an amend, this amendment or I want to put a private member's bill and it's this is what I'm aiming for and they will help you build that piece of uh, legislation. Uh, so, yes. Our forebears, they're the ones who, who made the Senate uh, transparent and allowed 
members of parliament to be fully informed uh, about what they were making decisions on. So that's a really crucial, I think, aspect of the Senate. Gosh, the more I hear about Janine, the more, you know. He was um, out there. She yeah. was definitely out there. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, Michael Macklin had a, has a couple of astonishing stories about her that um, he, he's, he's sort of shared with us on Facebook and we'll have to get him on the pod to, to talk more about that. The more I hear about Janine, the more such an inspiration and, and such a, as, as you said, trailblazer, like she personifies the word. Mm-hmm. You know, she was the first female leader of a political party in the country. And a feminist, big time. So um, she, she put men in their place uh, <laughs> in a very clever and funny way. She was... She was she was certainly smart. Yeah, because obviously she she passed away tragically young and long before my sort of political awakening happened. And so having sort of you know snippets of of um, you know stories about Janine and others, every time I hear about Janine, I'm devastated all over again that I you know she passed before I got to meet her and and, and learn from her. So, Lynn, thank you so much. This has been so illuminating and, and particularly the learning anew how transformative the Democrats have been, not just as a party but just in the way our, our, our politics operates to transform the, the, the Senate the way we did. Dearest listeners, we're running. It's on. It's finally on. The, the starting uh, gun has been fired. You will have Australian Democrat senators to vote for in your state and please do. Our young Democrats are working frantically behind the scenes to put together some um, materials on. So if if you are a young person and this is your first time voting, they're going to put some material together to explain how voting works. And if at the end of that process, you decide that you'd like to vote for the Democrats, and obviously we'd be very grateful for that. Speaking to people who, you know, talking about their first first voting time, it's really quite intimidating the first time you you rock up to a voting booth um, with a bit of paper in your hand and and, and vote. But um, it's also very exciting, so you shouldn't be terrified of it. We, we've got a window of opportunity, which is only seven days long, mm-hmm. and, and that is for those who haven't enrolled yet but are entitled to roll, you yes. should do it now. Mm-hmm. So please rock up to, um, I think you can do it online, uh, but please make sure that you have a vote and your vote counts. Yes. We'll put um, all the links and everything in the show notes so uh, you can go straight there and enrol immediately after listening to this uh, if you haven't already. And also if you are enrolled, make sure that you update your details with the AUC. If you've moved house in the last three years, uh, you need to make sure that you're up to date with them so that they can find you on the roll. It's on. It's exciting will be involved. This is your opportunity as a nation to return the Democrats to the Senate where we belong. It's our house. We transformed it. Put us back there and help us keep the bastards honest. Thank you to Lynn for another tour de force in sharing her wisdom and knowledge. I did some research after we recorded this And from what I can determine from the very helpful Australian Parliament website, Senators now get four staff members. So things have changed a little bit since Lynn served as a Senator. But the power and significance of the Senate remains unchanged. What really surprised me in talking to Lynn was discovering the many different ways that a minor party or even a single Senator can influence and change the country through their work in the Senate. 
Lynn's example of heading up a select committee on mental health in response to government inaction then led the government to not only respond to her findings, but to spend millions of dollars addressing the problems her committee's inquiry uncovered, all without passing any legislation or being a member of the government, or opposition for that matter. If you've ever wondered what is the point of having minor parties or independents in parliament, that's part of the answer. Very importantly, the electoral rolls close at 8pm local time on Monday the 18th of April. So if you need to enrol, or if you know a young person who needs to enrol, go straight to the show notes and to the link to the AEC website I've put there and get yourself signed up. If you're not yet 18, but you'll turn 18 between now and May 21st, or even on May 21st, you can provisionally enrol. And once your time on this planet ticks over on the magic 18-year milestone, you'll be able to vote. And more importantly, get your democracy sausage. As I said in the episode, if you've moved house since the last election, you also have until Monday night to update your address details with the AEC so they can find you on the roll. I've put links in to check your enrolment and to update your details if needed. If you don't manage to get your address details updated in time, don't panic. You'll still be able to vote. You'll just need to give the lovely AEC volunteer who marks you off the roll at the polling station your previous address, and then you'll be good to go. The thing I cannot stress enough is that you must be on the roll. Make sure of it. And once you're enrolled or updated and ready to vote, we'll be here for you to vote for in the Senate. In my case and Steve's case, quite literally. Steve has been endorsed as the lead Senate candidate for the Democrats in New South Wales. And I've been endorsed as the lead Senate candidate for WA. We have candidates in Queensland, Victoria and South Australia as well. And you'll be hearing from them soon. You can help send Steve and I to Parliament and help return the Australian Democrats to our home where we promise we will take up the important work of our Australian Democrats' forebears and keep the bastards honest. Keep the Bastards Honest is brought to you by the Australian Democrats. This episode was edited and produced by me, Alana Mitchell. If you'd like to keep in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube and LinkedIn by searching for Australian Democrats and you can see what we stand for, what we value, and what our policy positions are at our website at democrats.org.au. Until next time, thanks for listening. Listener.